You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and welcome to the United States Institute of Peace. My name is Lise Grande and I'm the head of USIP, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a national nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We're very pleased to welcome all of you to the Institute for this important conversation on prosecuting the crime of aggression in Ukraine. The highlight of this morning's meeting is a special statement from President Zelensky, the extraordinary leader of Ukraine who will describe the efforts underway to hold Russia accountable for the crimes it is committing in his country. We are also honored to welcome U.S. Congressman Representative Bill Keating and U.S. Congressman Representative Joe Wilson and the ambassador from Ukraine to the United States, Oksana Makovara. USIP is delighted to host this event in partnership with the Embassy of Ukraine and the Atlantic Council. Ambassador Markovara, Ambassador Herbst, your leadership on these issues has been and is exceptional. As we all know, accountability and justice are major pillars of US foreign policy and a shared responsibility of citizens everywhere in the world. Over the past nine months, USIP has been proud to convene a series of events that highlight the urgency and necessity of ensuring accountability for the crimes that are being committed in Ukraine. Today's discussion focuses on the crime of aggression. It is a grievous crime, a manifest violation of the Charter of the United Nations, and an act perpetrated by a state and leaders which undermines the entire foundation of global security. International mechanisms for prosecuting the crime of aggression, however, lag well behind the mechanisms that have been established to adjudicate genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Holding Russia accountable for what it is doing in Ukraine is one of the most important steps that the international community can take to uphold the interstate norms that protect all of us from catastrophe. And yet, no tribunal, domestic or international, Good morning. holds jurisdiction over the specific crime of aggression. Today, we're going to be looking at what it will take to establish a special tribunal that can do this. It is a distinct honor for us to share a special statement from President Zelensky, which is being presented from Kiev by Andrei Yermak, the head of the Office of the President of Ukraine. Following this statement, we are also pleased to welcome Andrei Smirnov, the deputy head of the Office of the President of Ukraine, who will also be sharing reflections. Thank you. Uh, dear friends, I'm here on behalf of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. 
to deliver the following messages to you. Peace is a universal value. And I'm sure that, that all of you appreciate it. And there is no such a person or such a nation that would not dream of it than someone destroyed the peace. But peace, it's impossible without justice. And justice, it's impossible without due process of law. What is why it's indispensable element of the peace formula is the establishment of the special tribunal for the crime of aggression committed by Russia against Ukraine. The crime of aggression is the alpha and omega of the war. To start a criminal and, and provocate war is to open the door to thousands of crimes committed during the hostilities and the occupied territory. Yes, it is necessary to bring to justice everyone who is, has committed war crimes. But only this is not enough. That is what minds is uh, the hell of aggression has been measured. Must also be punished. Who gave the order to start this criminal war and who organized the terror? This is what justice is. What is why Ukraine appeals to you and to the United States of America to support our efforts is establishing establishing the special tribunal for the crime of aggression. Our team will outline the key steps that are needed to make the justice work. And I argue you to support these steps, to support the power of universally recognized international law to become the alpha and omega of new and long lasting peace. If we have the due process of law now, justice will bring us the power of peace in the future. I believe that it is possible. Thank you very much for your attention. Slava Ukraine. Good morning, and thank you all for attending today's event on Russian accountability for atrocity crimes in Ukraine. It's a pleasure to speak to you all today, and, and I want to thank Ambassador Bill Taylor, the United States Institute of Peace, and the Atlantic Council for hosting this event. While logistically committee votes conflict, I'm happy to be able to provide my pre-recorded remarks and look forward to reviewing the lessons learned from this important session. I want to acknowledge President Zelensky and his remarks for early this morning. President Zelensky has shown incredible leadership working to fortify democratic development in Ukraine and since February 24th, has courageously defended his people, his country, and importantly, the desire for independence from the onslaught of Russian aggression. President Zelensky, we thank you for being here today. I stand with you. A bipartisan Congress stands with you. The United States stands with you. And together, the international community at large continues to support you and your country's fight for freedom. I'd also like to recognize the Ukrainian people for their heroism and bravery in this horrendous conflict. Against a much larger aggressor, your dogged determination is an inspiration for the world. 
The American people have been moved by your fight for freedom and as a result from coast to coast, in cities and on farms, Americans are voicing their support and Ukrainian flags are being flown across the entire country. One critical area of U.S. support that cannot be forgotten is ensuring Russia is held accountable for the war crimes it's committing in Ukraine. I've twice traveled to the Ukrainian border areas to listen firsthand to the accounts of so many people talking about this horror. This will be a painstaking and intensive process, but it's essential that the international community start this process now and work to hold Russians at all levels responsible for any and all illegal actions that they commit in Ukraine. Importantly, this work has already begun. In September of this year, the Independent International Commission of Inquiry briefed the United Nations Human Rights Council, stating that war crimes have indeed been committed in Ukraine. This commission has since interviewed 150 witnesses and victims from 27 cities and towns in Ukraine. There have been many cases of civilian executions, torture, assaults, including sexual assault and harassment. In the larger context, this is also the crime of aggression itself waged by Putin and the Russian government in conducting this unlawful war. As chairman of the House Subcommittee on Europe, I've introduced H.R. 8532, the Atrocity, Crimes, Relief and Accountability Act, a, a bill which aims to support current international prosecutions being organized by the ICC. This bill really targets all aspects of how to get justice for what's happening in Ukraine. It'll allow Ukrainian refugees located in the United States to tell their story to ICC investigators. It reinforces the ability of the United States personnel to advise, assist, and provide critical training to Ukrainian war crimes investigators. It establishes a victim's trust fund to assist victims of atrocity crimes, and then further established an atrocity crimes rewards program that incentivizes informants to bring forth material evidence leading to the arrest of suspected criminals. In addition, Representative Joe Wilson and I have introduced a bipartisan resolution to establish a special tribunal on the crime of aggression, while urging the President of the United States to take all available measures to support the creation of such a special tribunal. This resolution first and foremost condemns the Russian Federation's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and supports the people of Ukraine in their fight for freedom. Further, the resolution provides an internationally recognized definition of the crime of aggression and finds that Russia has committed the crime of aggression against Ukraine. I believe the U.S. has an obligation, along with our international partners, to assist Ukraine in its accountability efforts. Whether it's Vladimir Putin for executing his war on choice, his war of choice, Russian elites for aiding and abetting behavior, Russian military officers for issuing illegal orders, or the lowest Russian soldier for committing horrific acts of violence against civilians, the U.S. must support any and all efforts. We, we must spare no expense to shine a light on the heinous acts being committed in Ukraine and 
Importantly, bring accountability and justice to the people of Ukraine. By doing so, we'll also help ensure that these actions will never happen again. As a former prosecutor, I realized the importance of locking down forensic evidence and writing accounts at the earliest possible stage. Due to advanced technology and the strength of our institutions, we live in a world where justice for crimes committed during times of war is much more attainable than in years past. It's also brought evidence of these programs, of these groups of crimes, directly to our screens and our televisions at home. We cannot ignore this evidence, nor can we stand idly by. At this inflection point in history, we have an opportunity, an opportunity to find justice for victims and families, an opportunity to hold perpetrators accountable, and an opportunity to ensure the success of Ukraine's democratic and independent future. And it's incumbent on all of us to do our part to ensure Ukrainian investigators and prosecutors have the tools and resources they require in their endeavor to achieve justice. Again, I'd like to thank all of you for participating in this important discussion, and I look forward to any future discussion on this topic and for any recommendations you all may have on the ways in which the U.S. Congress can best support this effort. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Joe Wilson, a member of Congress, and I'm very grateful to be serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee and also serving on the Armed Services Committee. I am just so grateful for the U.S. Institute for Peace for having this conference today uh, regarding the potential of trying war crimes that uh, have so clearly been uh, perpetrated against the people of Ukraine. A year ago uh, this week, I was in Kyiv. Uh, it was so inspiring to me to see the people uh, there uh, they were actually at that time preparing for resistance, but they've done much better than that. And then sadly, the invasion of February the 24th uh, did have an unintended consequence. And that is that we have a coming together in Washington of Republicans and Democrats to stand the, by the people of Ukraine, to see the extraordinary uh, opportunities we've seen uh, with NATO now being expanded to include uh, Finland and to exclude to include uh, Sweden. How incredible this is and what a positive development this is uh, with the capabilities of both of their countries and to have uh, NATO uh, unified. Additionally, I'm really grateful I'm the co-chair of the EU caucus and it's just exciting to see the European Union uh, working to promote uh, countries that are neutral, to promote the defense of the people of Ukraine. Uh, I just am just so uh, grateful too that as we consider the potential for prosecution of war crimes, uh, we have a, a really remarkable circumstance. And that is that this war uh, is unlike any other war ever in history. Uh, it is a cell phone war. It's been identified uh, as that from the beginning. And so the atrocities that are being committed, uh, there will be uh, immediate cell phone uh, capability to develop the day, the uh, location, uh, the exact moments. Uh, the different troop movements, the personnel involved uh, in the potential of, uh, of crimes um, will be identified. Uh, this has never uh, truly uh, occurred before uh, and it's so sad, but it will be an opportunity to bring justice to the persons who are committing this. 
um, and the horror of what we see uh, with Vladimir Putin, uh, the war criminal who is sacrificing young Russians uh, for his own personal aggrandizement of oil, money, and power. Additionally, I am really grateful of working with the University of South Carolina. We have a, a rule of law program at the University of Kiev, and uh, it has really put uh, perspective to me of that we're in a worldwide uh, competition, and that is democracy's rule of law, and we're being challenged by autocrats' rule of gun. Uh, and so this is so important that we stand behind and beside the people of Ukraine for victory, not just a uh, negotiated settlement of some type. But we know and we uh, can only understand uh, Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, has made it clear that uh, if there is success uh, for the autocrats in Ukraine, they will immediately proceed to Moldova, to Georgia. This gives um, hope and uh, encouragement, sadly, to the Chinese Communist Party to proceed uh, against the 24 million people of Taiwan. And then uh, the axis of evil spreads to Tehran and their plans to vaporize the people of Israel. Uh, we all need to be standing together. Another country that should be standing together with us is the Republic of India, uh, which is the world's largest democracy and uh, in a destabilized world. It would be absolutely catastrophic uh, for India itself. And so uh, this is a conflict that is so critical and so important. And I'm just so grateful for the efforts being made by the Institute for Peace to work toward a situation of indeed uh, providing for victory for the people of Ukraine. Thank you very much for your attention. God bless America. God bless Ukraine. We're very pleased that Representative Bill Keating of Massachusetts and Representative Joe Wilson of South Carolina have shared their reflections with us. We're now going to go to Kyiv, and we're delighted to welcome Andre Smirnov, the deputy head of the Office of the President. Dear colleagues and partners, I am extremely pleased to see every one of you and feel your support that you provide daily to Ukraine. And this support is not only by words, but by, but Ukraine is fighting for, for its existence. Um, and we are fighting for this right in the war that was waged um, by Russia in Ukraine. And this is a very severe war. And this war is happening by the death of uh, civilians, uh, children, women, tortured, killed, uh, execution styles by the Russian missiles. This is uh, the war of the light with the darkness, and the light will win. But the question is, at what cost? Russia is a aggressor country, and this is not just a hypothesis of diplomatic negotiation. This is a proven fact, and it was not only proven by uh, video um, messages and pictures, but also by destroyed towns, critical infrastructure. This is a fact that's been established in international decisions and resolution. And this aggressor established um, specifically is designating this war to destroy the people of Ukraine. We have been tried three times by Holodomor. We will persevere when they want us to to uh, froze, freeze to death without 
water without uh, without heat. Many thousands, 45,000 of uh, buildings were destroyed. Uh, 1,500 um, establishments for children were destroyed. 11,000 kids were forcefully taken out of Ukraine. And these were just the established facts. The real um, land, the real uh, scale of the tragedy is much bigger. The atrocities are, um, are, are just uh, great, and I just don't want to retell the story. Uh, the children and the kids who were tortured, and we are now working on exhuming their bodies. And and every time, um, so for the aggressor, international conventions, um, any any warfare um, conventions do not are not taken into consideration. The 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 enemy has to be stopped in honor of the peace security. Uh, in the whole world. And there are few people to be blamed for this. Of course, first is the executor, the Russian soldier who came to Ukraine to kill, or even the launcher or the missile launcher. Uh, but on the other hand, those people who committed the original crime, the crime of aggression, we have the answers to both questions, how to bring to justice the, uh, both of the, the sides of this um, crime. But in order to establish international order and law, we need your help to help to help us um, create history. And this you can help us. You can help us in this fight who create these atrocities in the 21st century. In the first um, in the, the since the beginning of the war, the legal team of the Office of the President were looking for an effective methods um, and effective weapons. So somehow these those weapons was hidden, and this is the responsibility for aggression. This uh, nobody discussed this weapon of uh, responsibility, so-called weapon of responsibility. And nobody brought the question in Chechnya, uh, uh, for instance, brought, uh, brought to, in 2008 uh, the invasion to Georgia, in uh, Crimea, and Donbass. And well, if we um, if we look at the uh, tools that we have at our disposal, we this in the satellite world, we uh, won't see uh, a lot of things that we can use right now. Uh, so we don't have a lot of things to use to uh, deter and counter the actions of the demented dictator. However, we've learned the uh, uh, lessons of history well, how to bring to justice uh, for the uh, crime of uh, aggression, uh, the primary uh, crime that uh, provokes uh, the uh, all other uh, crimes, including genocide, um, uh, cr crimes against humanity, and war uh, crimes. So we have weighed out, we have analyzed all the risks of using other international instrument, uh, instruments and mechanisms, and we have come to one uh, conclusion that the only one alternative free and effective mechanism of bringing uh, to, uh, to holding accountable uh, for the crime of aggression, uh, the Russian Federation, is the uh, creation of a special international uh, tribunal. We believe that uh, the sooner we uh, will um, uh, implement this, uh, the uh, 
quicker will attain the victory. Uh, so we need to first and foremost call the international uh, terrorist uh, the way uh, what it, it really is. Uh, so Ukrainians have proven uh, their resolve uh, to fight for their uh, kids, for their livelihood. So we are now in a very unique uh, uh, environment, uh, legal environment. So because uh, we 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 uh, uh, one of the uh, um, because we see that uh, the International Criminal Court uh, does not uh, uh, actually uh, receives uh, accepts cases from the countries that are not party to uh, the uh, to the statutes. However, uh, unless the uh, Security Council of the United Nations will um, uh, bring in uh, such a request on behalf of the country non uh, non party country, and in this case we see that. Uh, uh, the International Criminal Court cannot do much uh, for us to help us. And we would like to use the International Criminal Court as well uh, as one of the um, instruments uh, for uh, going after the Russian Federation. However, uh, over the period of eight months uh, of uh, the uh, Russian military aggression uh, against Ukraine, we haven't seen a single case filed with the International Criminal Court court uh, that relates to the uh, uh, crime of uh, aggression. So we see a lot of other uh, cases related to the um, uh, crimes against humanity and others, but not the one that I mentioned first. So uh, we understand uh, that Russia will do everything to, in order to uh, well prevent us from uh, bringing it to justice for the uh, crime of aggression. We believe that our civilized world needs to unite in order to unite our efforts in order to uh, uh, to accomplish that, to bring Russia to justice for that particular crime, crime to uh, make an example of Russia, uh, to make sure that uh, uh, so no other countries, uh, country would uh, do similar uh, thing uh, after the Second World War. So I call upon you to uh, support Ukraine in that and uh, start discussing ways of uh, making it happen. We collectively need to act in order to uh, protect the lives of Ukrainian mothers and children who are innocent uh, and who may become yet another victims of uh, Russian uh, bombardments and shelling, but rather uh, to make sure that we have built a solid foundation for our uh, common security uh, 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 and de de defense. And thank you so much on behalf of myself, on behalf of uh, the entire Ukrainian nation as a Ukrainian. Uh, so I would like to thank uh, the United States for uh, their support and we will support uh, to Ukraine in this fight. So we will survive, we will uh, prevail. Thank you so much and glory to Ukraine. It's our great honor now to welcome to the podium Ambassador Oksana Makovra. Ambassador Makovra has served as the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States since April 2021 and previously had the distinction of serving as the Minister of Finance. She is a remarkable advocate for her country, one of Washington's most respected diplomats, and a leader for peace. Madam Ambassador. Dear President Liz Grande, 
all colleagues. I, it's so happy to be here with Institute of Peace and Atlantic Council, and I want to thank you for remarkable job we do together since February 24th. We cooperated a lot before, but this project that we have, ongoing project on uh, our search for justice, our fight for justice, has been very important, and we're very pleased to continue doing so. So both ambassadors, Ambassador Herbt and Ambassador Taylor. I'm very happy that we have here our Ukrainian delegation that is uh, having very, very active days in Washington, D.C., led by Lesa Zaburanna, but also other parliament members who are here, and our Ambassador Korinevich and Alexandra Drake and civil society. This is a joint delegation to talk yet about another instrument, which we, we are... Uh, to actively advocate now. It's 287th day of war, 16,000 airstrikes since February 24th, 97% of those on residential targets, unimaginable amount of atrocities and war crimes committed. And as we discussed in previous events in this forum, we have engaged in pretty much all international arena and everything we could do nationally in order to prosecute these atrocious crimes. So we have the national criminal prosecution. We are now have we now have cases in all three major international courts. We now have a number of partners starting their own national prosecutions, and we are helping and sharing the information. Well, I would like to thank the United States for un imaginable support in all of these areas from all key departments and also from President Biden. But the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group that was started by the Department of State and uh, under uh, great leadership of Beth Van Skak, and she has been with us a number of times here. But also the, the War Crimes Accountability Team that is led by Ellie Rosenbaum, which is very important on, on, on other uh, issues and other crimes that we are, we are trying to prosecute. And the Klepto Capture Task Force, where all departments came together to essentially find, seize, and, and confiscate the assets. All of that work is complementing each other. And today we're talking about tribunal, yet another very powerful instrument, not to substitute, not to divert the attention, but to complement everything that we are doing in order to address the mother of these crimes, the crime of aggression. The fact that Putin decided to attack us in 2014 and re-attack and reinvade the country in 2022 is the reason of all other crimes that are happening in Ukraine. So I will not take a lot of your time. This is something, as you heard from the President Zelensky's statement, as you heard from President Zelensky's 10-step peace formula. Justice is inseparable part of peace. Even after we win, and we have no doubts, that Ukraine will win this war. Even after we win, in order for the peace to be lasting and in order for peace to be true and just, justice has to be served. And everyone has to be held accountable, including Putin and all those high-level officials who decided to start the war. So I look forward to this excellent discussion. I'm, I'm very grateful for my colleagues. We have support for this idea of tribunal more and more, not only from our European colleagues, but also here in the United States. And I hope that this event, like many other events, which we had, and then we moved actively on some of the issues, is going to be the event which we will say, this is when we discussed it. And right after that, we received uh, 
great support for this idea, and I hope 2023 will be a year when this idea will come into realization. We need this tribunal for Ukraine, but we also need it for the world. Because if we can help hold Russia accountable for this, we can prevent so many other atrocities and, and aggressions. And we can also restore the global rule of law system, which has been shattered again on February 24th. So thank you all. I wish you good discussion. Uh, God bless America. Slava Ukraini. Uh, we're going to invite the members of the panel to join us on the stage. Uh, first, Ambassador Bull Taylor, who is the Vice President for the Institute of Peace. Um, Bill's done an incredible job in the last nine months in doing everything possible to highlight the issues in Ukraine. We try and keep track of how many times Bill has appeared on television and the media. He's given more than 800 separate interviews. Bill, welcome to the stage. Ambassador, please, please. Let's hear, please, come. Please, thank you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it is a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. Uh, follow you, Ambassador Makarova, the President, uh, in the words uh, spoken by Andre Yermak, uh, the, two, uh, the two members of Congress, um, who addressed us as well, all for the purpose um, of that, that Ambassador Mark Harvard just described. That is a special tribunal. We've got a great panel here to be able to talk about this. Um, we look forward to questions from people in this room, um, but also people online. Um, there's an opportunity to submit uh, questions online. Please take that. Um, they will come to me somehow or other. It will show up uh, here and I will... Uh, address the, address the uh, panelists here. So uh, let me introduce them. Um, Ambassador Makarova has already uh, introduced uh, the Member of Parliament, Lesya Zabruna. Um, she is also the chair uh, of the Subcommittee on Public Expenditures um, uh, of the Budget Committee <clears throat> and the Hovnerata. She was elected in, uh, in August of 2019. She took the office in August of 2019. Uh, Ambassador Kornovitz, um, Ambassador-at-Large, the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, head of the Ukrainian delegation to the International Court of Justice. Um, um, Anton and served as the permanent representative of the President of Ukraine in, uh, in the Autonomous Republic of Crimea between June 2019 and April of 2022. So, Ambassador, welcome. Um, and uh, at the, at, uh, all the way on the, your right, uh, my left, uh, Ambassador David Sheffer, Senior Fellow of the Council on Foreign Affairs, um, uh, the first ever U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes, um, uh, and he led the U.S. delegation to the U.N. talks establishing the International Criminal Court. Uh, he also signed uh, the Rome Statute uh, of the ICC on behalf of the United States and can tell us about the fate of, uh, of that here in this country as well, Ambassador. Um, he knows about special tribunals, um, uh, having, uh, having experience with uh, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Cambodia, and the ICC. So this is a great panel uh, that we've got to be able to discuss this. 
Um, Anton, Ambassador, let me, let me start with you. You have you probably originated uh, this idea um, in Kyiv. Um, and I know you've worked hard to, uh, uh, to establish it. And as, as your president, as Andrew Yermak has said, as Ambassador Markarov has described, made great progress. What was the basis? What's your, wh how, how does this work uh, in Ukraine, but also more, more broadly? How, what's, your, what's your vision of how the special tribunal should work? Yes, thank you so much, Ambassador. The question, and of course, uh, I'm really happy and honored to be here today in this uh, panel with such distinguished um, uh, panelists, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a great discussion. So just maybe uh, to clarify that this idea, and this is, I think, the uh, very important notion, that this idea was born both in Kiev, but also on the international side. So it was really a momentum when uh, we, Ukrainian lawyers, in the office of the President and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we understood that we need to do some action in this respect. And also, our colleagues, great expert international lawyers, in particular in London, Professor Philip Sands, Professor Dapo Okande, and now, I mean, they are in many countries, UK, US, Australia, Germany, uh, that the idea of the special tribunal was born. And I think this merging of uh, Ukrainian national and international uh, suggestions and proposals, it is very important. And uh, of course, we are very grateful to our, if I may call them academic colleagues and council, for their valuable advice. Uh, this is very important for us. And, and, and one of the reasons why this talk started was actually the OPAD in Financial Times by, by our big friend, uh, Professor Philip Sands. Uh, why don't we establish a special tribunal for the crime of aggression against Ukraine? So uh, we do see that this is the biggest war, at least in Europe, since 1945. We do see that as a state which uses effectively and actively all the possible tools and instruments to get Russia accountable and Russian citizens accountable for their crimes, we do feel that these existing mechanisms are not enough to secure, to satisfy the existence of comprehensive accountability. And we cannot afford ourselves as Ukrainians and as international community, I think also, to find ourselves in the situation when in several years we might have indictments, arrest warrants, judgments in relation to low-level and mid-level perpetrators of the crimes from the side of the Russian Federation. Of course it is important, but it will not be enough. So that is why the very nature of our idea is to work on the crime of aggression, which leads directly to the top, to those maybe 20 of persons who gave and still give orders to wage the aggressive war against Ukraine. And this is their crime. Their crime is aggression against our nation, uh, violating our territorial integrity, uh, trying to breach our sovereignty. And that is why we are sure that while we will continue using all the, if, uh, all the existing tools and mechanisms, uh, including the ICC, including cooperation with the International Criminal Court, we understand that without working on a track of investigation and prosecution of the crime of aggression against Ukraine, there might be the chance that the people who are the drivers of this war, where this war originated in their minds, that they will live with impunity. We cannot afford that. 
Ambassador, no one can afford that. The, the Ukrainians can't afford that. The world can't afford that. So the establishment of this special tribunal is really important. As Ambassador McCarver just said, it's important for Ukraine, it's important for the world. On the mechanics or on the, on the actual setting it up, there you have mentioned, others have mentioned uh, the coordination with and the, uh, the working with another international organization, whether it's the European Union or the UN. What, what's, what are your thinking? Uh, what's, what are your thoughts on how, that, how this tr special tribunal should be established? So, talking more on legal details yeah. and technicalities. Uh, of course, Ukraine cannot establish this tribunal alone. This should be an international action and support. So there may be several options how this tribunal may be established. The first track is to go to the United Nations uh, to have the agreement of Ukraine and the United Nations, which will be endorsed by the resolution of the General Assembly to set this tribunal. The second option will be to have something uh, with participation of European regional international organizations, say European Union, and or Council of Europe, and I'm sure you know that they both are active now on this track, on this track of accountability for the crime progression. There is also the option uh, of signing and having a treaty, a multilateral treaty between states, uh, which will um, establish such a tribunal, so-called Nuremberg model. So as of for now, all the options are on the table. We are trying to see, and what we are now doing, we are trying to get the feedback from our international partners, which option of establishing the tribunal looks feasible, looks more efficient, and looks as the one which can fly. Because, of course, we do not want to move on a track which will not be supported by our international partners, and this is very important. What we are sure about, and uh, what we are talking with our international partners, is that in this issue of establishing this tribunal, of uh, bringing justice and accountability for the crime of aggression against Ukraine, Ukraine shall not be left alone. I think that this is a critical point. Because the crime of aggression against Ukraine, as, as Mr. Yermak and Mr. Smenow mentioned, this is a crime which, for the sake of international community, cannot be left uh, without response. And for international lawyers, uh, I see some of them here in the room, and I'm sure they are listening also to us and, and looking uh, at our discussion. If the crime of aggression is not investigated and perpetrated in this particular situation, with all this recognition of aggression, of an act of aggression, in particular by the resolution of UN General Assembly, then it will mean, as Mr. Smenow said, that this might happen any time, any day, and, it, and the crime of aggression is something for a textbook on public international law, on history of international law. I think that this is something which uh, should not be our case. Absolutely. Let's um, see, I'm going to come to you next. But, um, David, this is an interesting question that you have some views on, I suspect, um, as an international lawyer. So we'll come back to you. Let's see, um, Thank you for organizing this. Uh, we have you to thank for all of this uh, in coordination with uh, John Herbst at the Atlantic Council. Um, uh, it's your organizational drive that, that gets, got us here. So how, in the RADA, um, how are you working this issue um, in Kiev and, and in the RADA? Thank you very much. First of all, I would like uh, to say thank you for you, Ambassador Taylor, for Ambassador Herbst, 
for the cooperation between Atlantic Council and Institute of Peace for the organizing this such important event meeting for us because uh, this topic is crucially important for Ukraine and not only for Ukraine but for all democratic countries in the world. Because I would like to highlight that now Ukraine, uh, we are not fighting for only our independence, for only our country and our freedom, but now we are fighting for all democratic worlds, for democratic values, and it's crucial important for us to feel your support in this question. And we are grateful for uh, the United States for support in military sphere, in financial support, because without you, without your help, it's impossible for us to be successful in this struggle. And I am absolutely sure that we will win as our uh, head of office, Andrei Smirnov, my colleagues mentioned, we believe that in nearest future we will have a victory. Uh, about your question about our work in the Parliament of Ukraine, uh, we started our work in the beginning of March after the war was started in February and we adopted our legislation base uh, because we needed also very strong cooperation with different international institutions in the prosecution, in the investigation of war crimes and other different crimes. But as my colleague Anton Korinevich mentioned, what is the problem is the prosecution of the crime of aggression. Because we know that unfortunately now ICC and other international institutions haven't jurisdiction to prosecute the crime of aggression. But the crime of aggression is a mother crime and is the reason for all other war crimes which we have unfortunately in our country. So in Parliament, in Ukrainian Parliament, we have done a lot of work to adopt our legislation according to the good collaboration with different institutions in, I mean, International Criminal Court, I mean, another prosecution institutions. And we hope that it will be a very good background for the establishment in future, the special tribunal also. Let's see, you mentioned uh, the, the, how much Ukraine appreciates U.S. support. And of course, we appreciate your, the Ukrainian courage and determination to fight this uh, aggression. Um, I'm very glad that we had the two congressmen um, uh, yeah. speak to that. And it was bipartisan, uh, just to make it clear that the United States uh, continues to support, will continue to support uh, on a bipartisan basis all of the kinds of things that you mentioned, both this establishment of the tri special tribunal, but also, as you mentioned, the financial support and the military support. Yes. So it's very good to, to have, have that uh, support there. Um, Ambassador Sheffer, um, a couple of questions. Uh, one is the one that, uh, that uh, the ambassador mentioned in terms of how to set this up. You've got some experience in setting up uh, these special tribunals. Um, what advice do you have uh, uh, for, for that question? Uh, 
Well, thanks, Ambassador Taylor. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here again. Um, yes, we went through this in the 1990s in a very intensive way in the building of five courts. Um, and uh, several of them were relating to specific situations in the world. And of course, the final one, the permanent ICC, was for the future. And it would be hoped, frankly, that when a situation like Ukraine occurred this year, the ICC would be fully capable of taking this on so that we don't have to talk about special tribunals again. That was the intention of, of the negotiators, that get this job done with the ICC. But in this case, there's a quirk, and that is that the ICC simply cannot exercise jurisdiction over the crime of aggression with respect to the Russian invasion of Ukraine for reasons that you know one could explain at length, but I won't. Um, and therefore, um, there is an opportunity here, and I simply do not believe it is that difficult. Um, just as we did with the special courts that we established for Cambodia and Sierra Leone, and then later for Lebanon, the special tribunal for Lebanon, uh, five, six years later, um, there can be a tribunal established through a treaty arrangement between the United Nations, which is an international institution with international legal personality, enters into treaties all the time, um, and the government of Ukraine. There would be a general assembly resolution. Forget the Security Council, the Russian and Chinese veto, silence the Security Council on these matters. But the general assembly, just as with Cambodia, can direct the Secretary General to enter into negotiations with the government of Ukraine to establish such a court. Now, in Cambodia's case, the agreement was that it would be a Cambodian court, but with a huge amount of UN infusion into it and, and authority and, and legal rights with respect to that tribunal in Cambodia. With Sierra Leone, the, the direction pointed in another direction. In other words, a completely UN-dominated court that ultimately became designated as an international uh, tribunal by the judges themselves. Um, so that procedure is available. Um, the General Assembly, which has already spoken several times with great condemnation with respect to the Russian aggression, um, could adopt such a resolution. And then, frankly, the Secretary General has the power then to negotiate the treaty and, and have the treaty signed between the United Nations and Ukraine. Um, it is necessary for the crime of aggression, but remember, the crime of aggression is not literally just February 24th. It is a continuing crime against Ukraine. Every time Russian military cross the border from Russia into Ukraine, probably some are doing it today, there's an act of aggression. Every time Russia fires missiles from Russian territory onto Ukraine, there's an act of aggression. Every time Russian aircraft move from Russian territory over into Ukraine territory, that's an act of aggression. And then there may be supplemental crimes. What those armaments then do may create war crimes. They may create crimes against humanity. They may be part of a plan for genocide. But the point is the crime of aggression is continuing. It is a perpetual crime. And that's why if one were to establish such a special tribunal, which I think is entirely feasible, and by the way, we have a series of blogs on the Just Security blog site. Some other academics and I have spelling all of this out. You just have to go to that series on Just Security to see all the writing on it. Um, 
If that were to occur, then I strongly believe, and I have one of my blogs about this, that there could be very tight coordination between the International Criminal Court and the Special Tribunal, whereby the evidence is sorted out, the target list for defendants is sorted out, there will be overlap, you figure that out, it's not mission impossible, the ICC may have primacy determined to go ahead with a war crimes charge, and then ultimately the special tribunal will take up the aggression charge. We do that all the time in our domestic courts. Harvey Weinstein was convicted in New York, now he's standing trial in California for similar crimes. It happens. There can be subsequent crimes that are prosecuted before different courts. Not a big deal. So. I think it can be done, but I think everyone has to sit back and realize two things. One, I think the special tribunal could actually be negotiated within a matter of weeks between you and lawyers and the government of Ukraine, and then set up by May, June. Um, and secondly, we're in this for the long haul. This is going to take many, many years. Um, we have to look for opportunities, maybe even under sealed indictments to capture suspects while they're outside Russian territory. And the final point, very quickly, Ambassador Taylor, is don't forget Belarus. The one crime that Lukashenko and the Belarus leadership can be most found at fault for is the crime of aggression. They are accomplice with Russia in terms of the ultimate invasion, particularly in February, of uh, Ukraine. So you don't want to forget those suspects as well. And Belarus is not a party to the ICC, so you need a special tribunal to get that done. David, thank you. I have one other question for you on the definition that you kind of alluded to, but I, let me just mention uh, uh, Lesia and Anton. You have the expert here, um, and I saw you taking notes. You've probably got some questions for him, so um, feel free to, uh, to, to pose those, and then we will open it to the audience as well. But, David, on the definition of aggression, there, when you negotiated the Rome Treaty, um, there, you, you defined uh, the, the crime of aggression. Well, let me clarify that. Yeah, please. Um, in fact, we did not arrive at a definition of the crime of aggression in 1998 in Rome. It was one thing we couldn't get to. Ah. It, was a, it was a busy time. So what, was, what happened was the crime of aggression was put into the Rome statute with a placeholder saying, please convene a review conference within seven years or so to work out the definition of aggression and how it would actually be activated under the Rome Statute. That took place in Kampala in 2010, all done. The amendments were uh, agreed to with respect to the Rome Statute. Those amendments are now part of the Rome Statute. And there are, I think, 44, 43 or 44 states which have now ratified those amendments with respect to the crime of aggression. The definition, very interestingly, is drawn from the 1974 General Assembly Resolution, which did define aggression, but for purposes of state responsibility. That definition was felt to be part of customary international law by the early 2000s, and therefore it was embraced by the parties, the member states of, of the ICC at that time, um, uh, as part of the Kampala Amendments. They simply took the 1974 definition, which everyone had agreed to by consensus in 1974, and grafted it into the Rome Statute. I will just tell you shortly, one could say, oh, wait a minute, isn't that a dated definition? Don't we need to update that? I gave some thought to that myself, and, and yes, 
it would be great if there was something specifically in there dealing with cyber warfare, for example, to sort of update the concept of aggression. On the other hand, judges could easily use wording within that definition to encompass uh, cyber warfare. Of the checklist that was established in that definition, I just looked at it again this morning, there is only one provision of that definition which would be irrelevant for Ukraine. Every other component of that definition is definitively relevant for what has happened between Russia and Ukraine, and thus would be the basis for criminal investigations and prosecutions. Thank you, David. Anton, you have the opportunity to uh, pursue. Uh... Yeah, so of course, having Ambassador Sheffer here with us, is a, it's a great, uh, great uh, opportunity. And of course, uh, we do agree with this international legal understanding. And of course, uh, it is very important that United Nations uh, uh, does participate in this in this process of, of, of setting up this uh, tribunal. Though, of course, the level of participation of United Nations may be different one. I mean, it can be, of course, if we go for a modality of an agreement of uh, Ukraine and, and uh, the United Nations on the basis of Cambodian, for instance, president, then, of course, uh, this resolution may, the resolution of General Assembly may endorse it. Or other way, you know, if the mechanisms, the tribunal is established on the basis of some other model, then of course uh, endorsement from United Nations General Assembly with a specific resolution on support of this tribunal will be very important to show the global uh, understanding and global support. Uh, and it is of course a matter of legitimacy and credibility. Because whenever you create something new and international, of course we need to secure the broad uh, support for such an endeavor, for such an effort. And I think that this is something what we hear from uh, a lot of our international partners, that whatever is the modality uh, by, by Ukraine and by our international partners will be chosen, the issue uh, of uh, getting the broadest possible support uh, is very important for that. And I think this is something what uh, President of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, was, was talking about uh, on, uh, with a statement uh, on the 30th of November that uh, EU, and we are very happy with the statement, that EU is already proposing something, so it's not only considering but proposing. Um, and of course, we are ready to, 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 to work with our colleagues on that matter. And that this mechanism, this, this court, special tribunal, it should have this broad support. In particular, it should be backed by the uh, United Nations. Because in the very end, uh, it is about, as I mentioned, maybe maximum 20 of alleged suspects. Of course, it's up for tribunal to decide, not for us. Here in this room, the procedures should be secured. But it might be that it's, it's 20 people, but the 20 people who are really in charge of pretty much all the main affairs uh, inside the state. So, of course, it is, uh, it is a case that uh, we need to have this support of the international community because a lot of legal issues and challenges will follow. And, of course, the, the obvious elephant in the room is the issue of immunities. Um, and uh, we will need to deal with that, whatever, uh, whatever model we choose, of course, because, uh, because it, it, it's a matter of... Uh, of being very cautious and being very legalistically, uh, I would say, clear-cut. Uh, and I think that it is important for us, um, as I mentioned, to see 
how do we move forward now from this political support, which we, I think, now uh, got, uh, in particular in Europe, uh, with support from Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, four resolutions, four resolutions of the European Parliament, two resolutions of NATO Parliamentary Assembly, resolution of OEC Parliamentary Assembly, several national parliaments resolutions, and it is indeed very important that we have this bipartisan draft resolution, motion for resolution by, two, uh, by, by, by Congressman Skidding and Wilson, because uh, it is a parliamentary approach and position which the government, uh, I'm sure, would, would, would listen to and would take, take into account. Uh, and for us, for Ukrainians, uh, it's also a matter which unites Ukrainians, because we have here with us in, in D.C. now parliamentarians, colleagues from the Office of the President, representatives of civil society. You heard colleagues from the Office of Management Leadership of the Office of the President. So that is a priority. And uh, now we want to transfer this political support, you know, to some more concrete legal action and, and, and technical action for us to move forward on that direction. <clears throat> Anton, you mentioned the, you mentioned, um, the uh, broad support in Ukraine, uh, including civil society. Um, and I'm going to recognize uh, Alexandra Dreek, who up there in, in a moment, Alexandra, just for you can uh, uh, represent the civil society aspect of this delegation and of, of Ukraine. But before we do that, David, I know you had some thoughts, um, and I'd be interested also in this question of EU sponsorship or UN sponsorship. Exactly. Please. And Anton, your remarks are, are so on point. Um, let me just say that there's a great debate underway, if some of you don't know about it, within the international legal community and at the International Criminal Court, and the, which is holding its, its, its uh, annual meeting this week in The Hague at the Assembly of States Parties of the ICC, over this whole issue of whether or not there should even be a special tribunal. And Anton noted one point, which is um, immunities. What he's talking about is head of state immunity, which is a rock-solid principle under international law that sometimes makes sense and sometimes does not, actually, um, that actually immunizes leaders of states from any kind of investigation or prosecution on the territory of a foreign state while they are head of state. Once they lose that power, then go for it. But while they have that power, they're not supposed to be subject to the legal scrutiny of other states. That's the principle under international law. However, um, the International Criminal Court, for all the member states of it, they've already agreed to waive that immunity with respect to ICC investigations and stuff. That's good. Uh, President Putin will be subject to investigation by the ICC on war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide without being able to uh, state uh, a head of state immunity with respect to that, at least not successfully in front of the judges of the ICC. And then secondly, however, um, that is, that is for the crime of aggression, since the ICC does not have jurisdiction, we have to talk about a special tribunal. Now, if we talk about a special tribunal, if it's created with a treaty with the United Nations, you can address that issue of sovereign immunity. And my, our, you know, the team of academics that I work with have argued very strenuously, you can remove head of state of, of immunity from the equation because that special tribunal will be an international criminal tribunal, and courts have already ruled on this. The International Court of Justice, uh, the International 
uh, criminal court and the special court for Sierra Leone have all addressed this issue and said, yeah, if it's an international tribunal, head of state of immunity is off deck. And so if such a court were to be established, for example, by the European Union or uh, Council of Europe, I, while I admire those efforts, I'm not so sure that courts established under that methodology would be able to successfully uh, take head of state immunity off deck uh, and, and not allow that to be uh, alleged by the Russian defendants, or certainly by Mr. Putin, by foreign ministers, by the senior cadre of the Russian government. So that's a very important legal issue that you know, everyone's noodling around. But I would just also finish with this, uh, Ambassador Taylor, sorry. Um, uh, Prosecutor Karim Khan of the ICC has stated his objection to the creation of a special tribunal, but he does so based mostly on that this would dilute attention from the ICC's efforts, that governments would not provide the sufficient funding to the ICC voluntarily, presumably, that is required. I would, I would disagree with that. Um, the crime of aggression is a basic crime of the ICC. You cannot put it aside. And just because there's a jurisdictional blockage on this, the special tribunal can contribute to the long-term life of the ICC by actually demonstrating through very close coordination with the ICC the actual investigation and prosecution of the crime of aggression so that in the future, the ICC will actually have the tools, the experience, uh, the, the, the history of working with the special tribunal to draw upon for 50, 60, 80 years from now, another act of aggression occurs, the ICC is ready to go. Uh, it's not, I just don't think the ICC should be intimidated by the prospect of the special tribunal. It can be coordinated. Yeah, just, just a, I, I think that this is a perfect, uh, perfect uh, point by, by Ambassador, is that from Ukrainian perspective, we do think the same. We do not compete with the ICC. We do not want to impede, to hamper the investigation, the work of the ICC. Uh, we deeply appreciate the investigation of the ICC in relation of three categories of core crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the law genocide. Um, our prosecutors have coordination and cooperation on a daily basis. We have amended our national law, in particular our criminal procedural code, in order to, to, to make work of the uh, ICC more effective. Uh, and I think that if you ask the ICC whether ICC is happy with cooperation with Ukraine, I think they will say yes, because really this cooperation goes really very, very deep. And uh, ICC is, is also joining us up to the joint investigative team for the first time in the history of the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC. So our idea of the special tribunal is really to complement and supplement ICC, to use the uh, principles and, and rules which are set forth in the Rome Statute and to apply them to uh, the very situation of this particular crime of aggression. And this is very important. So. Uh, we would be happy to, and we cooperate with the ICC, and I'm sure that there will be some moment when this uh, moment of, I would say, hesitation or whatever we can call it, can be uh, overcome. <coughs> Thank you, Anton. Nasya. Yes. Uh, if I may, I would like to add a few words. I am not a lawyer, 
So uh, I will try to explain my position as a politics. Uh, you know, I absolutely agree with my colleague Anton Korinevich. Uh, we wouldn't like to compete with ICC, but what we need as a members of parliament, uh, we meet with our Ukrainian people every day. We told, we spoke with them about different issues, and the main request from all Ukrainian people is a request about the justice. So we have to give the answer for this request. And if it's impossible to do with ICC because of the jurisdiction, so we have together to establish new institution which will help us to give the answer. To give the answer for all Ukrainian people, for civil society, because if we talk about our people, I can uh, tell you that we have now about 10,000 killed civilian people in our country. So a lot of families across all the Ukraine, unfortunately, have a tragedy. And we have to give them the answer. We have to give the answer not only for this family, but for our future generation, for our kids, for our children. We have to show them that justice is exist in a modern world. And if we want to live in a democratic world, if we want to develop our democratic values, we have demonstrate our work together and to demonstrate them that we will achieve this main goal. Because justice is one of the most important value for the democracy. So we would like to ask you, yesterday we had a very fruitful meeting with Congressman Keating, who is the author of this declaration. Uh, we discussed with him the possibility of adoption of this declaration in the nearest future. And we ask also you uh, to support this idea because, of course, I am absolutely sure that it's not very easy to establish a new international mechanism, but we have to do it. We have to do it not only for Ukraine, but for all democratic world to demonstrate that we support justice, we have to demonstrate it for our children, for our next generation, and we have to do what we can do, but it's never happened forever. Such terrible war as we have now in our country. And I would just add that um, while the U.S. position with respect to the International Criminal Court goes like this with each administration, it depends on what, what administration one's dealing with, um, U.S. leadership in building these types of courts has never wavered. Sierra Leone, Cambodia, um, Lebanon, and of course, right after World War II, Nuremberg and Tokyo. So the United States has never hesitated to take the lead in the creation of these types of special tribunals. Listen, you bring up the point that, uh, that this is important for all Ukrainians. And you and your delegation from the RADA um, represent um, the people of yes. Ukraine. But also, I, and here I'm going to ask Alexander, Alexandra uh, Drik, um, who is there. And if we have a mic, thank you very much. Um, 
representing, uh, representing civil society, but also people will know that this is a Nobel laureate. This is, this is the uh, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. This, I feel like this I should have sent out laureates. Thank you. You, I think you wanted to pose a question, <laughs> or you yeah. just want me to come You to have that. the opportunity to... to right. Yes, well, uh, first of all, uh, I think it, it's very symbolic uh, that we're here now in the Institute of Peace, and uh, uh, we, as it was mentioned, received the Nobel Peace Prize this year. And what we, as the Center for Civil Liberties, have been doing and focused on is documenting crimes committed by the Russian army in Ukraine. Obviously, with over 27,000 of these war crimes, crimes against humanity documented, we do, we do it not to become historians, but to make sure that there is accountability for all these crimes and that justice is delivered to all the victims. At the same time, uh, unfortunately, the situation uh, uh, with all four major grave international crimes um, basically uh, is the following. We don't have an institution in the world that can hold Russian and political military, uh, military leadership accountable for the crime of aggression. And while we understand that there is a, a huge number of victims that have been suffering and continue to suffer as we speak now in Ukraine from all these crimes, it's also important to remember that the factors triggered by the Russian aggression against Ukraine have affected much more people all over the globe. And that's not um, even us, that's the UN calculations that has uh, um, analyzed that 1.6 billion people in 94 countries have been directly affected by these factors. So what it means is that victims of this Russian aggression against Ukraine are scattered uh, all over the world, across the continents, and uh, those people suffering from hunger in Africa, from defaults in Asia, from inflation in Latin America, they can equally be considered the victims of the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Not only it violates the rules-based international order as it was laid out in the UN Charter, under which 193 countries have subscribed, but it does directly make people all over the world pay the price for Putin's sick imperialistic ambition. Ukraine was not the first, and it was mentioned here, there was Moldova, there was Chechnya, there was Georgia, there was Mali, Libya, Syria, many places where Russia and Russian-affiliated groups have been committing war crimes, and they have been enjoying impunity for decades. This has to stop. And Ukraine was not the first, but Ukraine must become the last. This is exactly why we, as, uh, um, as the Nobel Peace Prize uh, laureates of this year, have decided to invest uh, mm, this public capital into what we believe is a very right thing to do. And this is to support this initiative. And this is exactly what we're asking now people all over the world, those capitals that we have been visiting here as well, to support the establishment of the tribunal. Because there can be no peace without accountability. Thank you. Alexandra, thank you very much. Um, there, and this is uh, very relevant here at the Institute of Peace. So we look for options for peace here at the Institute. Um, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded um, to your organization. Uh, 
Uh, and so we both have invested in peace, a sustainable peace, a just peace. It cannot, the, the, the word peace is important, but it is important that it be a lasting peace. And if uh, a temporary one won't work, we can, we, this is not the topic of, uh, of this discussion today, but this is very important that uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winners here at the United States Institute of Peace are focusing on, on these issues. Um, Ambassador Sheffer, David, I've got one last question that I've been, I'd love to get thoughts and questions from the, from the audience here. You mentioned the importance of moving quickly. Um, and you're hoping that we could, uh, that, the, that this tribunal could be set up by next spring. Um, what's your thinking? In what's the urgency? What, uh, as you said, there's no statute of limitations on some of these things, but what's the urgency? Well, first of all, there are precedents. We set up the Yugoslav tribunal through the UN rather quickly in 1993, while the war was going on in the Balkans. We set up the Rwanda tribunal within six to seven months after the end of the genocide in Rwanda. And that mattered because remember, we're talking about evidence. This, these are criminal investigations and prosecutions. You need to get the right people into the field, gathering the evidence. And this, of course, has been happening in spades in Ukraine, but you, need to do, you, you, need, you still need to get the process underway in order to get those, those uh, um, uh, procedures for evidence and, and other investigations underway as quickly as you can while witnesses' memories are still fresh uh, and while, of course, the physical evidence, the forensic evidence is still available. Um, I do think that um, it's important with respect to Ukraine because the world's attention will float onwards uh, to other situations a year, two, three years from now, and it'll be more and more difficult to set up the accountability mechanism if, in fact, we're going to do this. I certainly experienced this with both Cambodia, where we sought, ultimately successfully, to set up a court to deal with the 1970s atrocities of Pol Pot. You can imagine how difficult that is for me to walk into a foreign, minister and, uh, foreign ministry and try to persuade some, uh, some of them weren't even born at the time, that it's important to set up a court to deal with the Pol Pot regime uh, and its leadership. That's very difficult. And the same with Sierra Leone. It took quite a number of years after the Civil War ended to actually get that court set up for all sorts of various reasons. So I would just argue, and, and that hurt, because some of the potential defendants died. Um, and the same, of course, was true for the Cambodia Tribunal. So I would just say that it's very important to get to these, to these potential suspects as quickly as possible with, uh, with the kind of, of, of procedures and operations that uh, the courts have to undertake in order to build their cases against them. <clears throat> Thank you, David. Let's go. Uh, thank you. I would like uh, to add a few words also. Uh, you know, we talked a lot of about the mechanism of establishing the special tribunal, but as Anton Kurinevich mentioned, in the beginning, first of all, the first step for us is political support and political willing of the United States to support our idea. In the beginning of our meeting, uh, we uh, had a brilliant speech of our great friend, Congressman Keating, and as I mentioned, we met with him yesterday, and we discussed the resolution number 1435, which was 
registered in Congress just now, and we need all your support for the adoption of this resolution. We have time. We need it now because you know that in February we will have the anniversary of the war, if I can say anniversary. It's a good word, but unfortunately. So it will be a very great political signal from the United States for us that United States, if they will adopt this resolution, will demonstrate our support, I'm sorry, support for us, and it will be a great political background for the next step in the establishment of this tribunal. So we could like to ask this support, this political willing, and one of the most important issue now is the adoption of this resolution in Congress. Thank you, Russell. Uh, if I may, just, just uh, in relation to and, the and issue. After your, so yeah. questions coming up, so have your questions ready. Yeah, very quickly, yeah. in relation to the issue of efficiency and speed, just for it to be heard from, from Ukrainian legal team, we as Ukrainian lawyers and, and politicians, we are ready to move forward as fast as we can. And this is actually what we do promote, in particular now in DC. So uh, we are working tirelessly on this thing. And I think that we already got some good result. Uh, we couldn't suggest in March that this issue will be such high on the agenda. So just to make sure that Ukrainian side, we are ready to move as efficient and as speedy as we can in order to get the job done. Thank you, Anton. Very good. Okay. Um, love to have questions, comments, thoughts from, uh, from people in this room. And if there are any online, we can, uh, we can take those as well. Yes, ma'am. Name and we got, a, we got a mic and look, know your name. And, uh, <laughs> My name is Katie McKinney. I'm a law student at GW. And I have a quick question for um, Ambassador Sheffer. So with the special tribunal, I'm very interested in the sort of um, interference that you'd see from countries like Russia and its allies in sort of the functions of that tribunal. And I'm interested also in the efforts that the US as well as other countries that support Ukraine can take to sort of mitigate that interference that you may anticipate. Right. Thanks. I'm, I'm a fan of GW Law School. I had a great visiting professorship there for a year. Um, the, um, uh, uh, the opportunity for Russia and Belarus, perhaps, uh, to interfere with the special tribunal only goes to the extent, frankly, of not, uh, first of all, not cooperating with it at all, which one would not expect it to, um, but secondly, um, not making available for um, arrest and custody any Russian who might be indicted by the special tribunal for the crime of aggression. That too is expected. I mean, there's nothing surprising about that. Um, but, you know, secondly, um, uh, I think ultimately leverage can be employed against Russia by the international community, by the NATO powers, etc., in the sense that. Right now, there's a tremendous body of sanctions against Russia. And while if there were to be a peace settlement of some sort negotiated, um, some of those sanctions might be lifted. Let's just 
to hypothesize, let's say some of the sanctions are lifted through a peace settlement. It doesn't mean all of the sanctions have to be lifted. And you can keep a reservoir of sanctions in place until there's proper cooperation by Russia, particularly in terms of indicted fugitives from either the ICC or the special uh, tribunal. That would, you know, that's a rather severe punishment, but it does go to the heart of how these courts operate. I mean, this was the tactic used in the Balkans with Serbia uh, in terms of ultimately getting uh, Milosevic, Karadzic, and Mladic before the Yugoslav tribunal. The European Union in particular used sanctions as a weapon uh, against Serbia to cooperate. Uh, and, and then those sanctions would be uh, lifted. So that's, that's one way. And the second uh, uh, I would just add is Remember, there will also be a whole host of reparations negotiations uh, and, and meetings, et cetera, that will take place for years now in terms of Russian liability on reparations towards Ukraine. And working through some cooperation with the Special Tribunal and with the ICC might be a, a, a good you know, sort of lubricant for those negotiations to sort of loosen them up a little bit. So David, if I can just follow up, great question. Um, so how does this work? How do special tribunals work um, in terms of, as you say, bringing defendants um, to, the, to the tribunal? Um, well, as you know, oftentimes the skeptics will say, oh, you'll never get the, the head of state or the top people there because they'll just hide and forever be outside the realm of justice. Of course, um, Though they're almost, they're, they're quite often proven wrong. Uh, Charles Taylor of Liberia was brought to justice. Milosevic of Serbia uh, was brought to justice. Um, of the top leaders of Rwanda were brought to justice. Um, and so uh, I, I would think that ultimately you, you conduct your work in these tribunals, including the ICC. You get the evidence, you prepare your indictments, you issue the indictment either publicly or you could have a sealed indictment, which the world doesn't know about. And that individual then travels from Moscow to Paris for a shopping trip. And guess what? In Paris, that individual is arrested under an international arrest warrant backed by the sealed indictment. So there are ways to ultimately get um, uh, uh, custody. Also remember that the indictments themselves are delegitimizing acts for the individual. In other words, let's say Putin is indicted by the ICC or the Special Tribunal in the near future or within a year or two. While he will claim that he doesn't care, frankly, it will further delegitimize him internationally. He'll be an indicted fugitive. Um, and secondly, even within Russian society itself, he may feign that it won't matter, but frankly, it usually does to the people that they are now led by an indicted fugitive internationally who can only possibly travel to Belarus and China in safety and nowhere else in the world to represent them, that doesn't work. So ultimately, those indictments can make a difference. Excellent. Very good question. Great question. Thank you for answering that. Other, other questions from here or from the online? Yes, ma'am. And there's a, there's a mic right here. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Laura Kelly from The Hill. I, I think you kind of touched on my question. Um, was wondering about what are the um, 
the desired outcomes of a special tribunal prosecution, whether it's jail time for perpetrators or reparations, um, paying for the reconstruction of Ukraine. So, Anton, you start. Yeah. yeah. So, this special tribunal, which we are trying to establish, is a matter, of course, of individual criminal responsibility. So, the outcome is a judgment, a verdict. So, legally per se. It's not, we do not see that it is legally and technically linked to the issue of reparations or compensations. So it is about criminal responsibility of a person. Uh, but of course, we do understand that it might have some impact on other things, in particular on the issue of uh, reparations. So the absolute victory, if I may say so, uh, will be, of course, getting this maybe top 20. Again, this will be for the tribunal to, to establish. Uh, uh, alleged suspects on the bench and uh, getting them prosecuted for the crime of aggression against Ukraine, which, as I mentioned, I'm sure that their crime is a crime of aggression. They are not just war criminals. I mean, war criminals, to be war criminals is also bad, but it's like, you know, the crime of aggression in such a particular situation, I think, is, is, is a more grievous thing. So. Having them on the bench, of course, uh, would be a victory. But um, I really share the idea that having the procedure and process itself, uh, having indictments, having arrest warrants, with, which will be recognized and legitimized by, by our, our partners, it will be already an important step, an important element to uh, having justice. So on the way to the absolute victory, there may be very important steps and elements which may get us there. And uh, actually, such a tribunal, uh, with due respect to the fact that it may have jurisdiction and it shall have jurisdiction in relation to crime of aggression itself, so the one crime, and uh, not a big bunch of persons who might be allegedly suspect there, it should not be such a big machinery as the ICC, ICTY, ICTR, even Sierra Leone. So we do think that uh, the, we can frame it in such a way that it will not be a burden for uh, for international community. Can I just jump yes. in and supplement Anton's uh, uh, excellent statement by saying that there is one opportunity here, which is I think uh, you have your case in the International Court of Justice at this time, the genocide uh, case. Um, and of course, there might be further litigation for Ukraine before the ICJ, before this is out. That would be the State Responsibility Court, the International Court of Justice. It is actually important if there can be convictions for uh, whether it be the ICC baskets of crimes that are being prosecuted, war crimes, crimes against humanity, possibly genocide, or the special, and or the special tribunal's crime of aggression. If you can actually get convictions on those, the International Court of Justice would take notice of that in terms of reaching its own conclusions about state responsibility for the crime of aggression, which would be the big time reparations you know, effort that Ukraine might pursue against Russia in the International Court of Justice if jurisdiction can be, you know, successfully argued. It would have to, I'm sure, have to be after, under the Genocide Convention and you'd have to work those arguments out. But the point being that 
the International Court of Justice with respect to the Balkans took the uh, convictions of the Srebrenica genocide very much into account in then determining that Serbia was responsible under the Genocide Convention for failing to prevent genocide at Srebrenica and for failing to properly prosecute, I think it was Mladic at that time, uh, 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 for, the, for the, the, that crime at Srebrenica. So state responsibility was thus established by the International Court of Justice based upon the work of the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal on criminal law against the perpetrators of the genocide at Srebrenica. Um, Mr. Please. Taylor, this Please. is just to mention that since uh, David mentioned our case in allegations of genocide in The Hague, uh, we have our big friend Marnie Chick here today with us from yes. Covington and Berling, with, with whom we work on that issue, and we really appreciate the, the support. And uh, I, I think we're, we're doing great there, <laughs> if I may I say think so. you're doing great there, too. And I, there are other questions that I want to be, be sure we get to, but I would like to come back to this question of genocide. I mean, we, we should not just run by this. I mean, we should not be numb to this notion. A genocide, there's an obligation on the part of the international community to, to prevent it. And if it's ongoing now, it does, my question is going to be, do we need a legal determination of genocide or, or not? But we'll, 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 come, we'll come back to that. There are a couple of other questions here. Yes, ma'am. Aha. Thank you very much. Viola Ginger with Just Security. Um, I was interested to know from uh, any of you, what is your sense of the direction of the international debate on this crime of aggression, the special tribunal for crime of aggression? Does it seem like it's going in that direction or is there more resistance than not? And what time frame are we talking about? David, you had mentioned that it theoretically could be set up by May of next year. How likely do you see that at this point? And, and in terms of this, these sort of judicial processes being very lengthy over many, many years, um, we saw that, of course, with Bosnia especially, but all, also with the other tribunals. Is there some realistic way of shortening those time frames in the interests of the victims in, and in the interest of, of sort of global justice and accountability. Well, the first part of your question, Anton, you were talking about just kind of the momentum or your, the, the direction, and then, we, and then the second part for David. Yeah, um, thank you. If I may comment also. Please, of course. Just briefly of course. On, on, yeah. on, on all the issues. So concerning momentum, um, I think that I hear quite often from our colleagues and partners who tell us that we could not anticipate in March uh, when pretty much a lot of people said that, ah, that's impossible. Uh, but today the mindset is, well, it is possible. So I think that in these nine months we got this understanding. And looking at how the things are moving, I think that the basement, the idea, the imperative that there must be accountability for the crime of aggression against Ukraine uh, is there. So I think that now we are either already in a point or getting to the point where this issue may not be neglected. 
And I think that this is a very important moment which leads us to the question that the issue is not if but how. So I think that what we do here now from, from our partners is that there are uh, possibilities to work on this. And, 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 and we do feel this. And, and you, you also, of course, feel this through this all, I mean, conversations and statements and, and, and work on the matter. Let's see what EU Council says about this uh, in December on the meeting of 15th and 16th of December. Uh, maybe some, some, some movements will be there. Uh, just just small, small introductions concerning the time frame. If it were only for the Ukrainian side, we would have already done that. But of course, to, to do that, we need political will from our partners. But we are, we are so, um, I would say, enthusiastic in moving forward on that direction that for us, uh, we would do whatever we can to, to, make it, to make it a speedy process. And concerning the long procedures, uh, we all know that the crime of aggression has a specific feature. It is rather easy to prove. And in particular, in such a uh, situation as we do have now. So I think this might be a part of an answer to this question. And I would just add, uh, absolutely on that last point, uh, the crime of aggression uh, has a, a magnitude and a, a self-evident character to it with respect to Ukraine over the, you know, since February at least, and of course one can stretch it back to 2014 as well, that establishing that act of aggression is not going to be that difficult. That, that can be done by the Special Tribunal. But in terms, Viola, of your question about timing, I would just reiterate that you know, when we did this in the 1990s, it simply takes a force of political will, frankly, at the United Nations. And I had the good luck of working for Ambassador you know, Madeleine Albright, who was a force all of, of herself. And she just pressed forward, and I followed, and, and we got these things done. So you have to have political will up at the United Nations. And right now, there is that political will. Ambassador Christian Ivanovesar of Liechtenstein, who led for many years the effort to actually get the crime of aggression defined, activated, ratified, he is now at the, at the head of a similar effort at the United Nations to actually get this special tribunal moving. So once the General Assembly takes that act of a resolution to authorize the negotiations, then just like with Rwanda, as I recall, uh, it, we got that going in late September of 1994, and by October we were in conference rooms at the UN negotiating, and the negotiations completed themselves basically by the end of October of 1994. So it, it can be done, and then it formally gets set up through you know, uh, law and resolutions, and then you have to again have political will to get the necessary resources marshaled, the funding marshaled, in order to, to get the tribunal actually uh, established. Thank you, David. Yes, right here, yes. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Um, this is an excellent panel. Um, my name is Roxelana Winar, and I am a graduate of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. I'm a Ukrainian-American activist and human rights activist, and I am part of different organizations that help Ukraine. Um, I just I have a kind of a two-part question, I guess, um, for our Ukrainian um, distinguished guests. 
How far back are you planning um, to focus the tribunal on? Because as you know, um, Ukrainian history is very complicated and there have been so many forms of Russian aggression throughout um, Ukraine's history. I mean, I'm a child of Ukrainian refugees that were displaced because of Joseph Stalin, and I was born first generation um, in the US. And so there's so many crimes that haven't even been recognized yet, what, what have, Russia has done. So obviously we need to focus on what's happening today with the ongoing um, terrorism and genocide. But I was just curious to know if the Ukrainian government will look at other parts of crimes, uh, other parts of history that have been committed, and if maybe separate tribunals need to be set up. I know that the ambassador mentioned the challenges with the Pol Pot in 1970. So it, the further back we go in history with people dying out, it may be more complicated. But I think it's necessary, and I'm wondering if it's possible to even look at other parts of history. Um, and you know, also about 2014, will that be included with this tribunal, or will it be like a separate one just dealing with Crimea and Luhansk and Donetsk? So if you could uh, please talk about that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Lesa, you want to start? I will start, yes. yes. I will start, yes. Thank you very much for this question. You're absolutely right. We have very uh, complicated history. And we had a lot of different acts of aggression from Russia. And actually, the war started in 2014, I mean this war, when we started to fight with Russia troops in our western, eastern part of our country. So as we now plan, it will be ad hoc special tribunal for the crime of aggression from the beginning, I suppose, from 2014 till now. And we would like to complement International Criminal Court in this issue to prosecute and to punish in the crime of aggression. But of course, you are absolutely right. Then in future, we have to think about the prosecution, about the investigation, all other cases. And we have to demonstrate all democratic world that it's impossible to do with any country in future. Thank you. And if I may, also maybe just small additions from the legal point of view. So, of course, I do share, and, and our Ukrainian team, we do have the same position that the Ratsona Temporis jurisdiction shall start uh, since 2014, as this aggression is a continuing crime. And uh, I mean, I myself worked as a president's representative for Crimea uh, for almost three years. I may not have other position because I, I know the people and how they suffer from the Russian aggression we started in 2014. Uh, so we do believe that this should be the starting point. On the other hand, there are some lawyers uh, which do consider that starting with 2022 might be an easier thing due to the fact that in 2022 we got what we didn't have in 2014, the UN General Assembly resolution with a recognition of an act of aggression. Uh, but what I want to mention is that these temporal jurisdiction issues are really not in top of the, I mean, everybody understand that we can, we can discuss, we can dis consider and we will find a way out. So of course for us 2014. And maybe also an important addition that 
what you mentioned is really important, that this idea and this endeavor, these efforts to establish a special tribunal does not undermine all the other crimes and all the other atrocities. All these tens of thousands of war crimes, of crimes against humanity, which take place now, and of course, which our people felt from Russia. Look, we are for hundreds of years fighting for our uh, independence from that uh, uh, neighbor, if I may say so. Uh, all that atrocity crimes which are taking place now, they, they, they do fall under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and National Courts of Ukraine. So the reason why do we advocate and talk about the special tribunal is to fill the loophole and gap which exists. But it doesn't mean, of course, that all the other things should not be covered. There should be comprehensive accountability, which means that all the, all the uh, examples and all the instances, they, are, they get the legal response and reaction. Just to add one, for one minute, uh, back in 1994 with Rwanda, that was precisely the argument presented by the Tutsi government. They said, you must have the temporal jurisdiction earlier than just January 1, 1994, because we've been subjected to genocidal actions by the Hutu government long before uh, January 1 of 1994. That became a subject of intense negotiation in New York between, well, the lawyers for the the powers at the table, as well as the UN lawyers, and then the Rwandan Tutsi government, which of course had prevailed against the Hutus in the genocide, conf you know, the conflict in 1994. And they wanted to nail the Hutus for everything prior to 1994. But ultimately, the negotiation settled on just the calendar year 1994. Uh, and that was just a long negotiation. As Anton says, it's up for discussion, and I would leave that to, to the negotiators to, to resolve. We have time for one last question. I have an online question. We have an online question, please. Yeah, so um, are you concerned that the establishment of a special tribunal to try the Russian leadership could hamper potential future peace negotiations? Potential? Potential peace negotiations. Well, do you want to take that, uh, either of you, or? <laughs> Uh, thank you for this question. Uh, as our um, ambassador Oksana Markandorova mentioned, uh, we tried to start negotiation with Russia in the beginning of this war. We had a special delegation for this process, but it was not negotiation, it was something like ultimatum from that side. And of course it's impossible now to negotiate in another, uh, another uh, way than President Zelensky proposed 10 main steps which we need to start this negotiation. But in any case, as I uh, told in the beginning of our discussion, all Ukrainian people need justice. So in any case, we need to establish the special tribunal is the answer for our people. We need to prosecute this crime of aggression. We need to punish in this crime. And only after this, we need also to negotiate. Maybe Anton will add. Just I think that having this uh, uh, plan of President Zelensky, we are here to, uh, to uh, realize it, to implement it. And uh, this tribunal uh, is needed 
for bringing justice and for addressing key perpetrators of this aggressive war. Uh, so it might be an important step. And uh, I think one of the German high-level politicians uh, mentioned on a public discussion in Berlin in October that a Nuremberg Tribunal was a gift to German nation. So maybe we will save Russian nation by doing this. Let's do that. <coughs> a great gift. Uh, and and I, would, I would say that uh, the horse is already out of the barn. The International Criminal Court is already knee-deep in investigations on three other baskets of crimes. And we're still talking about the possibility of, of you know, peace negotiations at some point. The justice wagon has left. I mean, it's gone. I mean, it's, it's happening. To add the special tribunal to that, I don't think makes that much of a, uh, of a difference on that calculus in terms of the thinking of the Russian leaders with respect to uh, uh, negotiations. You know, recall that I, I, I find it difficult to find an example in history, in recent history, where by affirmatively withholding international justice, criminal justice, you, uh, th there is an example of peace negotiations surging forward and everyone's at peace and society is stable. That just doesn't work that way with the perpetrators of atrocity crimes. Uh, withholding international criminal justice, I think, can even be counterproductive, whereas by slamming forward and ultimately getting those indictments, you can actually pressure them to come to the peace table. David, absolutely right. Um, uh, I, that's, my, that's what I was trying to say earlier when we say we need a just peace, a lasting peace, a durable peace, um, which you don't have if you don't have justice. And we've made that point, you all have made that point over and over. Um, so let me, let me do my last uh, duty as a moderator here and thanking uh, Lesia, Anton, David for their, and ask you to join me in that thanking of, uh, of this panel. Thank you. Excellent, excellent panel. And it is now my great pleasure to invite Ambassador John Herbst, our co-sponsor of uh, this event. Yes, to the, and we'll just stay here. And uh, John, the floor is yours. Bill, thank you. I'd like to thank Bill and USIP for taking the lead on this event. I'd like to thank Ambassador Makarova for the Ukrainian Embassy joining this event. And of course, from the Atlantic Council, I'm here to say we're also part of it. I'm delighted for that last question because it, it speaks to what I wanted to get in, in the, these remarks. Uh, there is a history, a, an important history, of bringing international war criminals to justice. And especially Ambassador Sheffer went through that referring to war criminals from Liberia, Rwanda, uh, Cambodia, Serbia, who were brought to justice. Now, of course, all of those countries are, relatively speaking, small countries. But then we have the example of the Nuremberg trials and the trials of uh, senior German and Japanese officials, two major powers, and their citizens, war criminals, were brought to justice. However, there we're talking about two large powers that unconditionally surrendered in a world war. And sadly, that's not what anyone is talking about here. Um, I, I know of no one, and I pay a great deal of attention to this subject, who expects there to be the unconditional surrender by those war criminals in the Kremlin. Unfortunate, but I think highly likely. 
we will not see that. So what's the purpose of this? What is the purpose of going after collecting data on the myriad war crimes committed, putting that data against individuals, high-level individuals whose names are in the newspapers, lower-level individuals who commit their atrocities not in the light of day. And there are, in fact, three good reasons for the effort represented by the very excellent panel we've had this morning. And the first is, my job, as I see it, is to be one of the small helping hands to ensure that Putin loses in Ukraine. And let me tell you, this effort, and Ambassador Shefford mentioned this a little bit in answer to the last question, um, is very much part of defeating the Kremlin. How's that? By assembling this data and making it public, we are helping to undermine this criminal enterprise that the Russians are conducting in Ukraine. Now, I don't say that just out of the air, grasping for reason to justify this activity. For those of you who follow Russia, you know that they have more than their share of propagandists. And perhaps the two most prominent Russian propagandists are uh, Madame Simonyan, the head of Russian TV, RT, and Vladimir Solovyov. And on mainstream Russian TV, which means on you know, truly bizarre TV, just a couple of weeks ago, they were lamenting that senior Russian officials, unnamed, were talking about The Hague. This is helping to undermine the morale of the bad guys conducting this war and bringing this to the attention of the entire Russian people. Not a bad thing to do. That's the most important reason for this. The second was also mentioned in the course of the panel, though not as a principal thing. Uh, right now, there are approximately 300 billion Russian assets frozen in the international financial system. Now, you talk to Bill, you talk to me, we'll say, it's a no-brainer. Russia has destroyed more than that amount of resources in Ukraine, give it to the Ukrainians. Now, we have this wonderful international financial system, which goes a credit back to Bretton Woods. When we talk about the international-based world order, it goes back to Bretton Woods and other places after, right after World War II. And the green eye shade types, who are very much in charge of these institutions, say, well, wait a minute, we can't do that. That's completely out of the procedures we have, that we've established. Now, they're right about that. But guess what? When Putin began this large war in Ukraine, and this big invasion, he busted out wide open that system. He put an extraordinary event in place involving deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, the kidnapping of children, the raping of women, you know the list of war crimes we're talking about. It's time to move beyond the green eye shade regulations that have dominated the system. Someone needs to understand that. And this effort helps drive that home. So that's the second very good reason for doing this. And the third one is very simple. Now I said, no one expects unconditional surrender from Russia. And I'd be willing to bet many things that that would not happen. Although I've been wrong before. Uh, 
But it's quite possible that as a result of the coming Kremlin defeat in Ukraine, there will be serious changes in Russia. Because this war is very much Putin's war. There are, there are enough helping hands with him in this war, but it's very much Putin's war. In circumstances like that, I do not completely rule out the possibility we could find Putin or Shoigu or Gierken Strelkov in the dock somewhere in Europe. So Godspeed to you and if lawyers who can do this, I can't, but I can certainly applaud. And maybe, maybe throw applaud them as well. <coughs> Thank you, John. Thank you all for joining us, both here and online. Uh, we'll continue this dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.